Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Welcome back to Happy Path Podcast. Happy Path Programming Podcast. Yes, Happy Path Programming Podcast. <laughs> the podcast. That's true. Yes. Um, and we. Uh, one of the things that uh, I want to mention is the uh, Winter Tech Forum here in Crested Butte, Colorado, is the the end of February, beginning of March that week. Okay. And uh, I'm I'm still uh, tweaking the website a little okay. bit, but I should have wintertechforum.com. Uh, winter wintertechforum.com. That's right. Okay. And so. Um, and I, it looks like you know we'll we'll get some good turnout this year and nice. finally yeah have a good time and nice time to be back. yeah yeah we'll do all be doing all the good things the the yurt dinner and the progressive dinner and the the lightning talks lightning talks yeah day and which I'm thinking we might have in the movie theater the lightning oh talks. that'd be fun yeah that'd be really fun yeah I'm thinking. Yeah, thinking we might do it there. So, anyway, yeah, check it out, and uh, hopefully, people can come. Yeah. Great. So this week we have Benji Weinberger, who is actually tell me because we we sort of arranged this in a flurry at the last minute. <laughs> tell me what your um, who are you? What do you do? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yes. Tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, uh, my name is Benji. I am a software developer and have been one for over 25 years now. So, you know, I've, I've been through several ups and downs of uh, our crazy industry. Starting with what was, the, what was the first like professional language? Oh, I started in C++ okay. back when I think that was kind of all there was. Java was just starting out. So my first job out of university was 1997. Java wasn't quite in a lot of industrial use at the time, and so it was all C, C++. Plus, I was working at a Checkpoint on uh, firewalls and network security, and so wow. obviously uh, you know, that was an, an obvious language choice. So, yeah, I cut my teeth on C++ pretty early, and it's all uh, it's all been downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> or uphill, depending on which way you're looking. <laughs> um, right. Good. Yeah, so I... I've had the good fortune to work at some really cool uh, companies, including uh, Google for many years, nice. at Twitter, at Foursquare. And now I am the co-founder of Toolchain, which is a company in the build systems space. Nice. And I'm one of the creators and maintainers of Pants, which is an open source build system with a focus on ease of use, on ease of um, adoption, and has a strong focus on how companies that are not fangs use uh, code in the real world. So things like yeah. focusing on Python, because that's an incredibly popular language uh, for various use cases, and um, focus but, on that kind um, of thing. Pants, now... I mean, the thing that drew me to it, because I've been fooling around with it for the last few weeks, is um, the Python use. But it also supports, uh, I know you're working on support for some things, and you have support for other things. And it's like, it does support Java now, is that right? Supports. And Scala. Correct. And you're working on Kotlin. No, Kotlin is also fully supported now. Okay, nice. Okay. Once you support so, two JVM languages, adding a third is actually yeah. surprisingly straightforward. Okay, nice. Okay, uh, give us the history on pants. I, I, and I get to be the one who knows nothing in this perfect episodes. So this is great. Yeah. Um, I have obviously heard of pants, but have never used it and really know nothing about it. So, so start us at the beginning. Sure. So what we call pants today is the the third of its name. There were multiple iterations of this project all under the same banner. And it started out about 12 years ago at Twitter, where uh, John Sirois, who is now my co-founder at Toolchain, and I were futzing around with this problem. Uh, John had already begun hacking on it. Um, part of it was the observation that I think is not unusual that you know I'd worked at uh, some companies before I went to Google. And 
you know, had this experience of the tooling just not being very good and not really understanding that better things were possible because you accept, especially when you're junior as I was, you accept what's given to you. So, you know, make files that are clunky and slow and hard to work with and um, builds that take a really long time. And you just sort of Except accept that. it. It's sort of, there's almost a weird, bizarre sense of pride around it. Like, this is what puts hair on your chest. Like, this is what makes you a real developer is like climbing up the mountain of code with nothing but a janky make file. And you accept it. And then um, I went to Google and um, my eyes were opened by not so much the tooling that most of which was not in place. When I joined Google, they were still using a make file, but yeah. the attitude. Huh. That was the open my eyes to nope, developing developers are a, you know, this is a first class use case and we will invest in coming up with best practices to make developers more productive and develop the tools to uh, support and enforce those best practices. And that was not an attitude I had previously encountered. Yeah, the tools, I mean, that attitude that led to tools. Google, like really set a high bar for um, what some people call today developer productivity engineering hmm. like actually so there's actually a term for it now i think the gradle folks have been been pushing that but um but there's actually a term for this like focus and having a team that is focused on making all of the engineers more productive which i think is awesome. rather than just yeah it's like oh it's something you have to do it's a hurdle you have to get over it's stuff you have to put up with in order to but it doesn't encourage uh, really, you know, fine tuning, you know, it, it encourages just enough, but not really utilizing the tool to make your life easier. What's, what's wild is that this seems like an area that is so easily measurable, where you can show that we invested this much time, and we then saved this much time. But for some reason, most companies don't do it. Like, it seems like the most obvious place to optimize. And, and most people don't do it. And what's maddening is that many of those companies are trying to get other business functions to do that. If they're making software that automates your sales pipeline or your HR function, they are saying to every other business function, buy our product because of these metrics. And yet they're not somehow not really applying that to their own discipline. I mean, the, the, the sort of truism of the... Uh, you know, the cobbler's children going barefoot is, is really, there's something to that. Um, yeah. So after I left Google and went to Twitter, it was like going back in a time machine 10 years and noticing, oh, now we're back to nobody really cares about this area. There is no focus on developer productivity. Everybody's just doing whatever. So and going back real quick to Google. Yeah. Did you, were you there when they were doing Blaze and yeah. Lark and all that. So you you were seeing some of the evolution Correct. and investment into build tools in particular at Google. Correct. Um, that was, you know, when I started there, there was a make file and um, there was a, I was there, you know, at the point where the make file itself took sort of five to 10 minutes just to parse the make file. It was a 200,000 <laughs> line make file. Ouch. And and there were all these rumors of someone, someone's working on something that's going to be way better. And then it's it, it became what is Blaze today. I mean, there, there were obviously many evolutions of it. But yeah, so I, I lived through that transition. And that really drove home to me, my God, like, it does not have to be this way. If you are, if you treat your engineering like a business function that deserves the best tools, you either buy them or build them. So you got to Twitter and you're like, oh, I just stepped back into like, the dark ages. What is going on here? It's not Twitter's fault. It's just the industry had not moved ahead um, yeah. the way that some of the, you know, Google and maybe a couple other giant fangs had done. And so John had already started hacking on, uh, this was before um, Bazel, which is the sort of open yeah. source variant of Blaze uh, existed. And John had also worked at Google, had had the exact same observation I did and, you know, decided to uh, scratch our own itch in this way. And so I joined with him and we started working on this thing. Uh, it was focused on Scala at the time. And this was, uh, there were a couple of iterations of this internally at Twitter. Uh, the name Pants comes from the very, very first iteration of this that John put together in a, over a hack week, which was it generated, it was for Scala builds and it generated ant.xml files <laughs> using Python. So it was Python ants. Uh, pants, nice. pants, and the name stuck around, even though the <laughs> thing it is an acronym of did not stick around for very yeah. long at all. Um, 
So you would, so in that initial version, you would write some Python and then that would generate XML to then build Scala. It's basically a Python DSL. Project. Wow. Yeah. Now, uh, was the Python DSL part of that uh, motivated by Skylark or was that kind of... No, no, no. That was, Skylark was not really a thing yet as far as I recall. Um, No, it was more just having a way to describe your bills that was succinct and well understood and wasn't XML. Uh, Cause that was sort of the still the tail end of the XML uh, days. Yeah. I remember when XML was just going to be the Can't solution to everything. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. oh, I remember that. I remember the uh, sort of going to Java one conference around the year 2000 and everything was like, you don't have to write Java code. You can program in XML. And, I was thinking that sounds worse. That sounds like I quite like Java and I really don't want to code in XML, but like the whole idea of like, you can program declaratively. I'm like, no, that sounds horrible. Oh, X doclet. Oh, yeah. Yep. And jelly script. And yeah. So, you know, rough times. (laughs) But you couldn't, you couldn't deny XML or else you would be speaking negatively. Oh, no. I mean, but that was the heyday. This was like before the dot-com collapse when if you knew anything at all about XML, you were sort of guaranteed to get attention. And yep, yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, okay. So Pants kind of V1 was, was Python. It was basically Pants. that. And um, V0 even. We quickly moved away from that. And then the evolution of that, it was really focused on Scala. And uh, after my time at Twitter, I went to work at Foursquare. Um, and they had... A very similar, you know, big Scala code base. The builds were taking a really long time. Laptops were running out of RAM because Scala is, you know, <laughs> a fascinating Scala. language, but also a beast. Yeah. And I knew about this internal solution at Twitter, and I talked to John about getting Twitter to open source it so that we could collaborate on it and use it at Foursquare. And so that was the more the first open source version of pants pants v1 maybe that that sort of python and thing was maybe v0 that was very focused on scala and it wasn't really open sourced in any meaningful way other than as a mechanism so that um twitter and foursquare could both use it and collaborate on it and a few a few other companies jumped in on this but it really wasn't big or intended to be where i think what pants is today is is pants v2 which is massively different from everything that came before it really the only thing that survived is the name and the differences and it was very much informed by real world experiences both of using basil of using pants v1 of how hard both of those systems were to adopt and so pants v2 really was a massive departure I, i would say it is really informed by not by how Twitter or Foursquare or Google or Facebook do engineering, but how the thousands and thousands of other teams do engineering. And so one of the things that I'm curious about is it, it sounds like maybe one of the core reasons for pants or motivators is really about making engineers more productive. Is that accurate that that's like that, that's part of the why that drove pants? hundred percent. I mean, more productive and also selfishly happier. Mm. So, my manager cares about my productivity. I care about my happiness. And those are hope, you know, in a, in a good environment, those are related. And did you spend much time like studying Gradle? Not a ton. We looked at, so roughly in my mind, Gradle, SBT, Ant, and Maven are somewhat similar idiomatically, even though they're obviously different systems and they each have different strengths and weaknesses. I, I'm no expert at Gradle. Um, we realized that that the the that very JVM centric top down idiom that those systems kind of impose was not what we were looking for. We wanted something more similar to Pants V1 or Bazel or Buck, where um, the system understands your dependencies at an extremely fine grained level, like mm-hmm. ideally at the file level, yeah. and versus. One, Versus the like kind of class path orientation. Exactly. Like, are always running around. What is the class path? And that's that's kind of the core uh, model. For exactly. Uh, we wanted to to be able to have a sort of the the general idiom in many of those other systems is 
if you have multiple projects, they each have their own um, class hierarchy and they get composed together, as you say, at the class path level. And we wanted something very fine grained where you could have a single package tree in whatever language and the system knows how to slice and dice that for you. Yeah. But what we didn't want was to impose, like the downside of these systems, including Pants v1 uh, and including Bazel and the rest of them, is the maintenance of the, the so-called build files that contain all that information is um, very laborious and error prone. And we wanted, one thing we heard loud and clear from all the teams of various sizes that we were talking to is we do not want that. That is a burden you can impose if you're Google and you can say, well, this is how we work and it is part of your job to maintain build files. You know, you're a captive audience uh, and the adoption only has to happen once. But we were trying to build a system that we've ad adopted, you know, thousands of times. So yeah. we knew that making it laborious was a non-starter. And so that's where um, we leaned in on so, uh, static analysis to what we call so dependency inference to learn about the structure and dependencies of your code from looking at your code instead of from looking at manually written metadata. And that I would say is the single biggest difference. Okay, I want to dive into that, but to take a tangent real quick. So making developers more productive is one of the, the motivators, but then there's another motivator, which is kind of making the build approachable to everyone on a team versus I think Gradle is, a specialist. <laughs> exactly, Gradle is more focused on a build specialist. Mm -hmm. There's somebody who is the build engineer and they are, if you need a build change, you gotta go to them because they're the only ones that understand it. Whereas for Pants, it was, no, let's make it so that everyone can be a build engineer. For all my Gradle files, James has been my build engineer. And, uh -huh. and, and no, oh God, no, we don't. We do not understand Gradle. Yeah. yeah, we'd like that to be... I mean, your build... Sometimes your builds are complicated because your code base is complicated. We don't want to add more complexity from the build system. We want the build system to streamline as best it can. Because there are really two kinds. I mean, uh, when you, uh, your podcast a few weeks ago and you talked to Josh uh, Swerth, like, hitting the nail on the head, there's like two, there's, there's two audiences here. There's the people who absolutely do not care. And just the tool is a necessary evil to... Um, manage things but i really don't want to know how it works and every time i have to dive into its uh documentation that's a failure versus the people who actually not only need to but want to know how everything works and so as long as your team has at least one or two of the latter you're in you're in good shape yeah but pants took a, the other approach which is let's make it so that you everyone can be that build engineer essentially We'd like to make it, I mean, it's a work in progress, I would say. It is still, there are complexities that I would prefer were not there. Um, part of that is just the legacy of existing use cases and existing uh, configuration. And th th there's a lot of exist sort of pre-existing idioms and assumptions that we are slowly working our way out of. So yeah. we are getting closer and closer to the day where, you know, the tool essentially adopts itself. And um, we're, 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 we're much closer, I think, than we were and much closer than any other tool is out there. There's a lot of automation around that. As I said, a lot of static analysis. Um, the tool, one thing that was very important that it goes to that point is it was very important for the tool to not require you to refactor or change your code itself. So huh. I believe, I could be wrong about this, this is one of the few, if only, tools that will happily handle um, things, evil things like uh, dependency cycles, which okay. are generally not healthy, and you'd rather not have them. You'd rather not have spaghetti dependencies, um, like giant hairballs of dependencies wrapping around your entire code base. Yeah. But we handle that if you have it, um, because we know that's a real-world thing, and we do not want adopting pants to begin with a refactoring project. Right. So yeah. there's a strong sense of like, let's um, let developers where they are, yeah. the, provide tooling to help them refactor their code base if they choose, but do not require it as a precondition to using anything. Yeah. So one of the things that I noticed is that the design of pants seems to have a very functional 
flavor to it. You know, it seems like you're you're doing you're working with immutability. You're caching um, like test results so that you don't repeat them and things like that. It seems like you've been influenced pretty strongly by the functional mindset. Oh, absolutely. I think the so the engine the the panzers kind of there there are two main layers to the technology there's the execution engine which is written in rust for performance reasons mm-hmm. because it is orchestrating even in a medium sized build it might be orchestrating many thousands of units of work and then there are the uh, apis that you actually write the specific rule logic with you know how do i compile this scala file or whatever those are written in python because most of what they do is set up inputs and outputs and then invoke processes. So they are not uh, typically as performance sensitive, but the engine is. Hmm. So the we had to come up with an API that le- where, and, and this, this was took some doing and there was a lot of uh, clever work by people who aren't me and then some dumb work by people who are me. <laughs> and it was, we had to come up with an API that was, relatively you know it was python based with python is, is extremely familiar to, to many many people um where we wanted and this is one of the lessons we learned from pants v1 was we uh, an important feature of uh, any build system pants in particular is um we want concurrency and caching and invalidation to just fall out of the api we do not want you to have to think about them when you yeah. write custom build logic. That is very important because those things are really hard to reason about. And the functional paradigm lets you do that. Like the fact that you can say, okay, all these, this is a pure function that has no, can neither rely on nor cause side effects because we run all processes in a sandbox environment. It can only act on its inputs. However, it, uh, you know, so therefore it, um, we can fingerprint those inputs and we know that that is a uh, consistent cache key. We given uh, you know, because of those inputs and we can chain those inputs and outputs together because we know there are no side effects. And so we can create this big workflow graph on the fly. Um, you know exactly what parts get invalidated when certain inputs change. Exactly. It also means we can apply concurrency uh, in a... You know how to split uh, the graph. ...principled way because we can see just, you know, through graph analysis that these two units of work don't depend on each other so they can run concurrently. Um, the relying on immutable inputs... And on pure functions has is what allows the whole thing to work, but the you know we, we did not require you to learn a relatively obscure functional language. It's Python. Yeah, nice. And it seems like this is really driven by one of your core motivators, which is to make developers more productive. Because of course, when you run a build, you don't want to have to redo work that's already been done. And you know, if the inputs haven't changed. And right. that's just a way to make my build run faster. Exactly. And, you know, good caching, good invalidation, all that kind of stuff is critical. It's super necessary. Otherwise, uh, you have to apply those things piecemeal in specific uh, cases. And that is hard to do and hard to get right. And I think we have never had a cache invalidation. We have never had a, a cache bug where something was cached when it shouldn't. Sometimes things are not cached when they could be. That is a performance issue, and we might tweak the cache key in that case. Uh, but it's far better in this world to have a performance problem than a correctness problem. Yeah. And I so... also really like the uh, way that you chose Python as the, the I don't know, top-level implementation language because... In Gradle, they used, well, originally Groovy, and then on top of that, they created their own DSL. And you had to learn all that, and you had to learn the uh, life. You have to understand the life cycle, or else you'll make just really obvious mistakes. And there are just so many pitfalls. Yeah. Um, We wanted it to be relatively intuitive Python. We wanted to use words are not symbols so i think in your conversation about sbt the the dsl was mentioned and i used sbt back in the day and it's a very powerful and clever system and we in pants v1 we actually used a library the zinc which was the uh, incremental compiler out of sbt in library form 
Uh, but the one thing that really got us was the uh, symbolic DSL, the sort of sideways Christmas trees where, you know, uh, tilde yeah. equals angle bracket means one thing, but equals equals angle bracket means another thing. And I was like, my brain just doesn't work that way. My brain can only consume words. Yeah, we were yes. just last night. Yeah, the 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 being able to create your own operators um, was a interesting experiment in Scala that is generally considered to be a discovery that we shouldn't do that yeah yeah once so some uh, since you listened to our episode with josh you heard the discussion around build dsls and should they be declarative or programmatic and it it sounds like like your builds because they use python are more imperative style but you have maybe constrained them to to be able to to uh, have the pure functional kind of things that you need around the, the build, build uh, def, the build DSL or something. Is that, tell me I more would say that. the DSL, which are build files is, was pretty inspired by uh, blaze um, okay. slash basil. So it is still, it is not, uh, it is full uh, Python. There are, um, it's a little more powerful, but and for example, there is a macro, you, you can write macros that are basically almost arbitrary Python uh, to uh, cut down on boilerplate in your build files even more. Okay. But I would say it is still declarative in that you define targets that are just describe what your code is, because there are so many different actions you can perform on them. Um, what we did was though, um, Pants has this concept of goals. Okay. So the thing you run on the command line is a goal. So you run pants test or pants lint or pants package. These are all, all those verbs are the verbs in the system are called goals. Um, we wanted there to be a very rich set of goals. And in fact, you can add custom ones as well as part of the uh, plugin API. And the reason is that those goals encapsulate a lot of understanding there are a lot of semantics there that the system can profitably use. So for example, when you run formatters that modify your source code, you have to run them sequentially because they are all changing the same files. And so you have to run them one at a time. But when you're running linters that don't modify the files, uh, you can run them all concurrently. So the fact that Pants understands a concept of linting or the concept of formatting or the concept of packaging or the concept of testing or the concept of compiling, obviously, uh, or publishing, uh, or, uh, you know, there are many others around uh, introspecting your build graph and things like that, um, type checking. There are many of these verbs here, but the fact that Pants understands the semantics of those uh, allows it to... It means you don't have to describe the semantics of those, yeah. basically. Uh, and so there is a an interplay between the declarative side of a build file and the um, and the, the, the the nouns, if you will, and the verbs and how they act on uh, these uh, nouns. That is, you know, we it is one of the things we try to streamline and try to make obvious. Like you should just be able to do, you know, pants test colon colon, which is the sort of shorthand for the, the non-shell expandable shorthand for, you know, everything under this directory. Uh, no. And the right thing should happen. It should figure out, like, wh which are the tests and run them and, you know, apply, again, uh, caching and concurrency appropriately. So I would say the, the descriptive part is still um, declarative. But as I mentioned, we are trying to move away from requiring much of that at all. So with, thanks to dependency inference, you don't need to provide uh, dependency information in, in the build files. So now your build files are pretty tiny. So um, because the, the system infers the dependencies from looking at imports and, and various other tricks wow. at runtime. So occasionally you may need to override that in a build file, but it's pretty rare. Um, yeah. It even knows in some cases how to do Sometimes you have dynamic dependencies, like Django is very big on this loading things by by their name at runtime. And huh. so the dependency inference code can look at strings that, static yeah. strings that look like um, package names and, and infer a dependency if you, if you configure it to do that. So there's a lot of that. So we're slowly moving away from needing much in the way of build files or, or uh, declarative sort of build configuration at all. So today, a typical... 
very commonly a build file today has one line in it, which just is the line Python code paren paren, which just says there is Python code in this directory, which, you know, you could also know by seeing there's a bunch of files with .py at the end. So we're slowly moving away from requiring much of any uh, config other, unless you need to tweak things, obviously. Yeah, then you can yeah, do that. have sensible defaults and then only have to specify something when, when it's different than the normal. <laughs> Yeah. And it let's see, I've been experiment. Well, I've been playing with the Linux version, but I know somebody's been working on a. I'm I'm sort of a defender of the Windows platform because it's you know the vast majority of programmers out there, you know, people out there have Windows machines. So anyway, I know that somebody's been working on a Windows native version, right? That's correct. So it runs today on POSIX systems. So it runs on Mac OS and uh, Linux, obviously. And WSL. And it runs on WSL. Uh, it does not run natively on Windows yet, but we are actively working on that. Um, because this, I mean, this is kind of, a, it's a shame and it's a weakness uh, right now that we don't support Windows natively. Uh, we have Windows users, again, using it on the uh, Windows subsystem for Linux, but that's not ideal. And that's why we are working on uh, Windows support. I think it just came from, there's a set of biases in Silicon Valley that do not apply outside of Silicon Valley. And I think we were a bit slow to recognize that. And I think that's unfortunate. Uh, there's a bit of, you know, well, kind of nobody in Silicon Valley or very few people are developers are developing uh, on on a Windows yeah. laptop or whatever, right? Like most people are running MacBooks. Some are running Linux. Everyone who's working on a MacBooks is deploying on Linux, so they all have to interact with Linux a ton. So those are the two, and and it's convenient that they are both POSIX systems, uh, and so they're rel a little more straightforward to support. Um, so where we're at right now with Windows support is a giant piece that we haven't really talked about um, of technology that undergirds everything that is how Pants works is a thing called PEX, which is short for Python executable. Um, and a huge, so uh, while, as we mentioned, uh, Pants supports uh, Go and Shell and Java and Scala and Kotlin, and we're working on uh, or looking at, uh, there's, there's beginnings of support for JavaScript. Uh, we'd like to support Rust, obviously, because we are written in Rust. There is beginning, someone is working on support for CC++. Um, and uh, we already support uh, native uh, code compilation for Python through sort of setup tools and, and, and those mechanisms. Um, so I forgot where I was going with this now. <laughs> oh, you're talking about Windows support. Windows. Oh, that's right, Windows support. Um, yeah. yeah, so PEX is a big underlying piece of uh, Pants. It's what allows us to sort of resolve Python code and uh, package it into files and ship it around. And, and it's just sort of a big building block there. And so the, to get hands to work, uh, particularly for Python, uh, so, so PEX is important both for users who are using Pants for their Python code, but also internally as part of Pants' implementation because it, it uses Python. So PEX now works on Windows. That is a huge milestone. It's There are a few of its tests, of its unit tests that still don't pass on Windows, so we're not declaring it really ready yet so there's i think out of many many hundreds of tests i think there are about 50 that don't pass yet and so once pex works on windows um and there are used people out there who are using pex directly without pants because it is also a command line tool for building these pex files these python executable files um once we're confident that pex works then we will begin the work of making pants itself run natively on windows which i expect hopefully i mean it's not a trivial undertaking but if PEX works, that makes me much more optimistic that PANS will because PEX does so yeah. much of the uh, heavy lifting and the the, um, the code sort of system-specific work. I would guess that a lot of the challenges are around the differences between POSIX and Windows. And mm -hmm. God, what a, what a horrible thing for our industry that Windows is not based on POSIX. That mm -hmm. would make so many things so much easier. So like Simlinks, you know? I'm sure that just oh, dealing yeah. with Simlinks is a Sim massive... Well, when you're not aware of the, like at a very superficial level, you might think, well, the difference is in like backslashes versus forward slashes or, you know, case sensitivity on the file system or, you know, 
having drive letters in your past. It's it's none of that, right? That, like that. Those are the easiest problems to solve. The hard problems to solve are things like file locking and um, yeah, symlinks and sort of the just the low level. The things that aren't easily leveled exactly where there's not just a difference in syntax but an impedance mismatch. Like that's where. So could PEX be used as a um, like a distribution format for Python? Oh yes, that is actually its original purpose. Was it is a format, a tool, and a format for uh, deploying Python, a single file, executable file that contains all of your own Python code and also all of your transitive third-party requirements. So essentially, you don't then need to run pip or create a virtual env or anything like that. This file standalone is executable, but what it doesn't include um, yet, this is a thing that we're working on separately, is uh, an interpreter. So essentially, when you run it, the first thing it does is look for a compatible interpreter on the system. So it knows, for example, the code in me is requires whatever Python three nine in order to run, and then it will look on uh, on the system uh, for on the path for a compatible interpreter. It will test that the interpreters it finds are compatible, and it will choose the first one it finds, and then execute your code. Uh, and then it, one of the problems I was running into with WSL is the l- newer versions of WSL start with uh, I think Python three ten. Uh, and so the three nine interpreter was not available by default. You had to mm-hmm. you had to install it. To, right. And so if your PEX wants three nine, you're stuck. So one thing that PEX pants and and more significantly PEX do with respect to Python is that they keep you very honest. The the without a tool like that, you just sort of type Python and something comes up. And if you have multiple interpreters on your system, you're not really sure which they are. Um, and PEX is very strict about stuff like that. And so a frequent error that people have is like, I said I was compatible with you know Python 3.7 and now my uh, I can't resolve. And the reason is that you have a, I forget which one it is. There's like some fairly commonly used uh, third-party requirement on PyPI that declares itself incompatible with 3.7.1 and only 3.7.1 and compatible with everything else in the 3.7 series. And so if your code says I'm compatible with all of 3.7, then it is correctly failing, but it is incredibly frustrating, uh-huh. right? It is being very strict at you, but it sometimes is, is frustrating. But it is good in the end because it is eliminating a class or it is forcing a class of errors on you at build time that otherwise might only manifest at runtime. Are you familiar with the the Beware project? And one of the things they've been trying to do is make easy Python uh, distributions. I'm not super familiar with it. No. Okay. Okay. Because because no. yeah they and I you know when I hear this I'm thinking oh well that would be uh, maybe a nice thing to go hand in hand with what they're trying to do. One thing that I, I sort of alluded to a little earlier is we are now also working on the problem of oh, so sorry before I get into that I should mention that PEX there's a standalone tool you can run but Pants is a very convenient way to build PEX files because it knows. You can say, you know, build me a binary with this file as its main, and Pants will know how to find all of the dependencies, both internal and external, and bring them all together and put them in a PEX and so on. But the other interesting thing we're working on is a separate technology that will, among other things, take a PEX and add an interpreter to it and ship that. Now you don't even need an interpreter. This thing is called SCIE, spelled S-C-I-E. It's still a work in progress, uh, although... Uh, we are soon hoping to actually distribute Pants that way. Pants itself currently relies on there being an interpreter on your system that can run the Python parts of it. And right. we are now, we pretty soon hope to sh- switch to shipping Pants as a literal, as a Rust and Python binary that has its own internal interpreter as, a, as an implementation detail. So you can run Pants on a system that has no interpreter. I'm a big fan of not having standard 
dependencies, mm -hmm. you know, like system dependencies beyond like libc and you know some of the, the normal ones. It exactly. Always, it always is frustrating when I'm oh good very in and try to get a tool chain up and running, and it's like oh god, like there goes the rest you, of my day. Oh, of course like, you have Ruby. To install these things. Ruby is just oh. the freaking worst with this. It's like yeah, they, every time I need to get the Ruby tool chain going, it's like there goes my day. Many right. many users have hit this problem. I think Bruce, even you you encountered this at one point, right? Where it's just really frustrating that to run the tool, the tool has. Python as an external dependency, and we are now moving towards bundling it, uh, which will be great for many reasons, including that we will not need to support uh, Pants itself running on multiple interpreter versions because it only needs to run on whatever it's being bundled with. Your code can be any interpreter version still. Like we, Pants does not. Pants today runs on three seven, three eight, three nine, but your code can be two seven or three eleven or anything, uh, Pant because. Pants' yeah. own interpreter is just its own implementation detail. Yeah, for the DSL, for yeah. your build DSL. Yeah, yeah. well, I, well I, for I, the rules. Yeah, certainly like hearing all these things. Um, so, when did you start Toolchain? We started Toolchain in 2018. Okay, and how how like how many people do you have, and how are you funding? So we are including sort of contractors and so on. There's about 14 of us. So still pretty small and mostly developers, but also now some uh, developer relations and sales and marketing. And the uh, we are venture-backed. Um, so okay. we've had some very, um, you know, we're very grateful to have had uh, some bootstrapping. Seed firms <laughs> believe in us. Um, but uh, yeah, so... And you're you're all about pants. That's that's yeah. The, what we're about what we're about really is. Sorry, don't know why my phone decided to ring. Um, what we're really about is uh, developer productivity, right? And making yeah. developers happy and, and productive. And we, you know, pants is sort of the technology that we believe is um, really. Best suited for best suited for this great. in the real world for multiple reasons. One is Python, and, and its emphasis on you know it supports many languages, but its Python support. It, it was, we first launched it Pants v two with uh, Python support only because huh. we had to start somewhere. And Python is now obviously so popular that we decided that was the that was the gap in the market. That was yeah. where we felt like there was just not great tooling out there. Um, yeah, hundred percent on that. But then the you know what? World of Python tooling. So. But what Toolchain adds on top of that is the remote caching, remote execution, which is uh, where a lot of the performance comes from. Yeah, I find it interesting that you started in Scala and you started creating pants for Scala, and then now it's. Seems like it's Python first, and then adding the other languages afterwards. Curious about that too. Your your like journey to Polyglot to being a Polyglot build tool because most build tools are specific, or at least start specific to a language, and then some expand to multiple languages. But it sounds like V two is when there is a major shift. I don't know. Tell me more about That's that. That's absolutely right. So. Pants v0, v1, they were Scala-focused because we were working at a company that was using Scala, and that was the internal need. But when, you know, Pants v2, as I mentioned, you know, is, shares only a name with that earlier system, it was pretty much a close to a blank canvas for us to, uh, you know, design what we wanted. And what we wanted was something that would be really useful to a wide variety of teams and, and be sort of very widely adopted. And rather well, than being... recognizing that most organizations have many different platform code, even within a single project. Yeah. yeah. But what one thing they 90 something percent of them had in common was Python. It is it, Python went under underwent this sort of massive revolution, I'd say in the last maybe 10 years or so, maybe a little more where it went from being what I facetiously refer to as fancy bash, right? It was just like a slightly better scripting yeah. language to a core language that people are building entire businesses out of, uh, whether it's 
Django or Flask uh, web apps or whether, or, you know, fast API now, or um, obviously machine learning and data science is the language of choice for those use cases. Rocketed it into the stratosphere. 100%. So suddenly, you know, if if 10, 15 years ago, the truism was every company is a software company, I think it's fair to say now that every company is a data science company. And Python is the language. Of and data Python science. is the language. And so and that's the build tool of, of yeah, Python. That's kind of where we were going with that. So of course, people have other languages. Certainly, Scala has some really uh, good uses in the data science uh, area. Um, and we want to support all those languages for multiple reasons. One is we just want you to have a single uniform, even if you're Python-centric, but you also have code in these other languages, we want you to have a single uniform um, user experience. So pants test colon colon will just run all the tests, whatever the language is. And you don't, you know, if you, it's a pretty common experience where you're mostly writing in Python, but occasionally you had to go tweak the Go code. And now you don't want to have to go and learn that tool chain. You just want to <laughs> run the run the same command and the right thing happens. Um, <laughs> and if you, you know, um, so we wanted that. We also think that some of the ideas that we first tried out on Python, such as dependency inference and using static analysis instead of manual uh, configuration, are really valuable in any language. I think you know. I think they really you know in JVM, you know JVM is is very certainly Java itself, but really all of these languages are quite verbose when it comes to you know dependencies and imports and 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 having to sort of replicate all of that in build files is is laborious and annoying and people don't want that and so another reason so now we're seeing essentially pans uses spread out from python usage it started with python cuz that's all we supported and then they were like well companies that had python but they also had some scala and some java or some go but now we're actually seeing more and more usage of repos that don't have python in them um particularly uh starting to see it with go which um is obviously very gratifying, um, but a little surprising, but it's great. And also with JVM, we're now seeing uh, user bases that are like all Scala code bases, but using pants because alternatives are much more laborious to use. And so I think obviously the big thing we need to support next is JavaScript. And the main reason that that has not happened yet is the JavaScript ecosystem already has a giant wealth of tools. Of build tools, very good ones. Horrible, in my opinion, but no, I don't know. I mean, what we don't want to do is that XKCD comic where you know there are fourteen competing standards. We should you know build one to unify them all, and now there are fifteen competing standards. So we don't want to do that. So we want to figure out what pants can bring to that ecosystem that is additive and not uh, you know doesn't create even more fragmentation. And so. The main reason it hasn't happened yet is that none of us are on the core team are experts at JavaScript, and we are really kind of looking for partners, design partners, to help us figure out what the most meaningful uh, JavaScript uh, solution. Meanwhile, what we do have is you can use Pants to run some underlying. So Pants ha- can, can run sort of generic shell commands that you give it, uh, and so it can run your you know you can npm or whatever your yarn commands. Way. We would like to have a slightly, somewhat tighter JavaScript integration than that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So one thing I'm curious about with Pants is I think build tools tend to kind of either fit well for smaller, more um, simple use cases, or fit well mm-hmm. for more complex, larger use cases. So Bazel being, you know, on the one end of the spectrum and then things like, I don't know, Maven being on the other or whatever. And so do you do you see Pants as being able to, is it more segmented at one side of the spectrum or really is it trying to be something that can cover the broad spectrum or what do you think? Well, it's definitely oriented towards the supporting you as you grow and get more complex. So using pants does not require that you adopt a sort of monorepo architecture, but it is very strong support for that. So it is good at things that the, say the conventional Python ecosystem is not necessarily strong at. So supporting things like having a single monorepo from which you deploy many different binaries that all have like intertwined dependencies, et cetera. Can you just define monorepo for everybody? Sure. So 
as your code base grows, you kind of have to make a decision about its architecture. And one way to do that is to keep splitting it up into, say, team-based repos or project-based repos. And then sharing code across those repos gets very difficult and has to be done typically through publishing and versioning. And, and it, it becomes, you fragment your code base. Um, and you it seems- a coordination problem. <laughs> exactly. Like you, 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 you've chosen one side of that trade-off. Uh, mono repos where you keep one um, unified repo where code depends on each other there isn't really an internal versioning problem. You're not introducing, you have the external jar hell problem, but you, at least you're not introducing jar hell into your code because everything depends on each other at build time, at link time, if you will, um, at head. Essentially, the versioning is done through, through Git or your version control system. And so you end up with a large repo that has code from possibly multiple languages, supporting many different libraries and many different projects and many different binaries and many different services. And uh, they all get deployed out of the same repo. And there are, I am sort of, I personally am opinionated that I generally prefer mono repos uh, for the, the simple reason being, and this is a very universal experience. When I make a change, I can see all the downstream impacts of my change because they are in that one repo. And if you have, these poly repo, these many small repos, uh, you have no way of knowing who is consuming your code. Mm. And so, and because if they're consuming your code in a versioned way, you kid yourself that you don't have to worry about it because like they can worry about it when they upgrade. But what the hell kind of attitude is that in a, in a, in a team to say, I am just going to punt this problem onto my future future coworkers, like somewhere down the line, like, yeah, so I, I like the, uh, I very much prefer the idea of being responsible for the impact of your own changes all the way through to production and a monorepo makes that uh, much uh, more tractable, but it requires tooling and Pants is an example of that kind of tooling. So I, in answer to your question about complexity, I think Pants is there to support you as you go from simple to complex, which you will inevitably do. So we wanted to, one of the reasons we wanted to make pants easier to adopt was to make it easier to adopt sooner before you have the problem, make it beneficial to adopt sooner because the sooner you adopt it, the uh, sooner you can tackle the growing pains. If yeah. you punt on adopting pants or a tool like it until you already have the growing pains and then you realize that to solve those pains, you first need to have a an adoption process and an onboarding process to some tool and you're already, your code base is already kind of in a difficult state. And so that adoption becomes very hard. You know, it's sort of, you know, an ounce of prevention is yeah. worth a pound of cure. And so we wanted to span that transition from simple to complex because everybody uh, goes through that transition and observing, oh my God, my code base is like super complicated. And, you know, what tool can I adopt to simplify it? I mean, yeah, do that if you have to, but if you can adopt, if the tool is simple enough and beneficial enough to adopt earlier down the curve, um, you can maybe not have those growing pains be quite as bad. That's been my experience so far is that even just a trivial repository is easy to set up and use with pants. So that's good. That's good to hear. Yeah. Um, because everything is, you know, I, I speak from our ambitions here. Like I, you know, this is software, so obviously it has flaws and it's not perfect yet. Um, but that is, you know, it, I think it is further along, um, than most, uh, systems in this space in achieving that goal. And that is a very strongly declared goal of yeah. the earlier you adopt this, uh, the the better your life will be, and our, uh, to back up that claim, we have to make it easy to adopt. It's one of one of the meta challenges of our industry is that generally, generally technology has some complexity cliff where mm. you you reach the limit of what it can do, and then you have to rewrite everything, mm. uh, rebuild, rearchitect, choose a different tool yeah. that's more oriented, and. I think Basil is is on the other side where you can probably handle any amount of complexity, but it is not fun for an early adopter, beginner, small project. Mm. And so they kind of chose, you know, that the other side of the spectrum, but very hard to have a technology that can 
fit across the whole spectrum and takes a lot of intention and effort. So it sounds like you have that intention. And are- I think so. I mean, one really big example is when you start out, you, you say in Python, you want to have all of your code use a single interpreter version and a single set of third-party dependencies, what we call a resolve or a lock file. And at some point, you may end up needing more than one of those. You may literally have different binaries or different use cases where the dependencies, they just really do need incompatible versions of those dependencies. And so now you have two separate universes of requirements. And so now you need a tool that can handle that. So Pants can handle that. Um, Pants can, can model like multiple sets of dependencies and knows which code belongs to which universe of dependencies, et cetera. Huh. It right. is way better if you adopted Pants before you hit that point right. than trying to adopt it when you have already got that problem. Unwind it, yeah. So one of the things I know that you've been working on is is build speed. Have you ever done comparisons between, like, say I set up uh, a Java build using Gradle and you do the same thing using pants have you like done any experiments where you're racing that's yeah you you don't have enough people no to we we have not um again like a lot of the develop you know the, the pants itself is open source i should mention obviously uh toolchain is a company and our remote caching and remote execution services are proprietary but pants the open source side of things is is a fully open source project with separate governance and so we have many contributors and maintainers who do not work at Toolchain and, and are full participants. And I think we may not even be a majority anymore in our own open source project, which is fine okay, because sure. we want everyone to feel empowered. And so if someone wants to go and do that uh, benchmarking, that, that benchmarking uh, they're extremely welcome to do so. We have not done it. And it's a little hard to say what an apples to apples comparison would even be because, for example, like, does remote execution yeah, you uh, factor on, like, into this is like or incremental. How many know, cores do you have? What's your disk speed? <laughs> right. Do you care more about the incremental case or the the sort of um, clean build case? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, do you care about remote caching? So for CI, for example, CI containers typically come up, uh, you know, with no state and no memory, and the CI providers caching is very hard. You know, it's very heavy weight, like you, yeah. you can cache and restore an entire directory. Typically those directories grow without bound. You don't know how to construct a cache key correctly. Like you have to manually construct cache keys in config. Um, so, you know, th- there are so many nuances here that it's a little hard for me to necessarily see what an Apple, st- like you have to first define the benchmark. It's like any benchmark, right? Like, yeah. like with yeah. database benchmarks, you have to say what it is you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah that makes <clears> sense. <throat> mm-hmm. Um, what's, what's the exciting future of pants? What's, what's on the horizon? Well, um, we, we do want to get people more into uh, remote caching and remote execution because it is so eye opening. Once you yeah. do that and you see your CI times drop from like an hour to, you know, five minutes in, especially with incremental builds, um, not having to, to repeat a lot of work. So that's kind of very exciting. I would say more language support. JavaScript, um, Rust is a big one that we want to support because you know we use Rust ourselves, uh, so purely selfishly. And then um, another big thing that is uh, coming very soon is um, support for uh, what we're referring to as environments, so where you can essentially do things like cross-build. Uh, so you can execute, you can run on Mac or Windows hopefully soon, yeah. but execute in Docker uh, so individual processes that are marked as being uh, platform sensitive, platform specific, can run in Docker. So you can do things like run natively on your Mac OS laptop because you know you like it and it's user friendly, but you're actually building, testing, running even locally for Linux in a way that is, uh, which is the platform you presumably care about because it's the platform you're deploying to, and that sort of all happens very transparently and. Um, without you having to mess around with Docker containers, et cetera. Um, nice. And so, so that that is an exciting thing that is coming up. That's great. What about Taylor? Because that will take, if I start with, you know, a non-pants based 
um, build and I run pants Taylor, it creates the build files for me. Oh. Is that just for Python or will that work with other languages as well? No, that's expected to work for every language. So we allowed ourselves one pants related pun in the system, which was the name of this goal, Taylor, which uh, creates uh, the initial sort of an, an ongoing build that you build files for you. So again, build files don't contain dependency information, so they're usually pretty tiny. Uh, but even those tiny ones are generated uh, when you run this pants Taylor command. Um, and um, and you can keep running it as you add new directories and so on, and it will like fill in the build files in those directories. We expect Taylor and dependency inference are core features, and we don't really consider a language to be supported until uh, Taylor and uh, dep inference work for them. And so what does Taylor work with now? I mean, like, Java, Kotlin. Oh, okay. Yeah, pretty. Oh. I'm pretty sure. Uh, I don't want to. I wouldn't swear on a Bible that Kotlin is supported, but I'm pretty sure it is. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, give it a uh, try. I haven't personally uh, tested that out, but yeah, I think generally the idea is that Taylor needs to be. And I should mention, like, there is a Pants has a very rich. Um, plugin API and all of the built-in rules that it ships with are built using that API. So there's no like hidden secret internal only API that only the pants core can access. So if you want to write your own plugins and rules and support for stuff, the pants repo is full of examples. Mm -hmm. So, and, and we obviously try to document as best we can. Uh, documentation in open source is a whole topic to itself. Uh, we're doing our best with uh, documentation. Mm. Yeah, and the um, I've noticed that the Slack channel is very helpful way to if you get stuck, you have problems or whatever. Yeah, good support in there. Yeah, nice. it does, and there's no there are no dumb questions. Uh, You're treated kindly. Yes. Yeah. Our, our informal slogan there is there are no bad questions, only bad documentation, and <laughs> so or incomplete documentation. Yeah. So we really pride ourselves on the strength and. Uh, welcoming uh, nature of the community is very important. We know that this is complicated and we know that there is a human tendency to assume that everyone else knows what you know. And if they don't get it immediately, then, you know, they must be dumb. But actually, the opposite is true. And we want to make sure that uh, it's a friendly place to ask questions and participate. Uh, you know, we're trying to, as, uh, as I said, this isn't a very often open source systems and particularly build systems are very sort of thrown over the wall and like, this is how it is. We made this for our internal use. And if you find it useful, great, but you are not welcome to contribute back. And we have the opposite here where we very strongly encourage uh, participation, contribution. Your contribution could just be a question or opening an issue or you know, fixing a tiny bug or whatever it is. But we really do want that community engagement. It is a, it is a core strength of uh, the system that that community is available to you. Nice. Do you have somebody who's dedicated to documentation or is that just distributed among everybody? We unfortunately do not yet. Uh, we write the documentation as we go. Uh, I've, the feedback I've heard is that it is good for uh, open source documentation. I would add that that is not saying very much. So it, it's good. That's One, what damning with faint praise. Exactly. <laughs> And part of it is that the plugin API is not completely stable yet because as we learn about more use cases, we it, it is a lot more stable than it was six months ago, but it is not fully stable. And so we still allow ourselves to change it without uh, deprecation cycles. And so when you upgrade pants, there's sometimes we, we provide guides on how to upgrade and how to change your, your plugins if you have any. Um, so the documentation is really important and evolving the documentation is really important because... Uh, when you have an API that's not really fixed in stone yet, you need to document how uh, how to use it and how to upgrade uh, across it. Uh, no, we would love uh, to put more professional writing uh, into the documentation. It is a matter of uh, time and resources. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what is your business model? I mean, you, you said you have a uh, I mean, like, is it consulting and you have a software as a service kind of thing? Yeah, so three big things that a toolchain on the commercial side does. One is the remote caching, remote execution, uh, either a SaaS or uh, uh, we are about to launch on-prem because 
many, many of the certainly larger organizations cannot use SaaS for this for regulatory and compliance and security reasons. The second thing is enterprise support. So there are companies out there who want to adopt, obviously, open source software, but need there to be support for it uh, above and beyond the open source level support, which is best, just best effort. Um, Have so you gotten any provide... pushback from you know somebody getting a PO at a large organization for a lot of money for pants? And just, you know, the, the name kind of triggering some, some red flags. I, I mean, no, but I would love to be a fly on the wall in some of those conversations. Um, and then the third thing we do offer is uh, professional services where uh, sometimes a company will say, well, you know, we have this internal custom language or this internal custom code generator, or we need support for this external language, you know, just would you, you know, you could build it in a fraction of the time it would take us to build it. Can you build it? And then in some cases we will do that if it's, um, if we think it's beneficial, particularly if we can open source. So if someone came along tomorrow and said like, I would, you know, can I pay you to add Haskell support? We would go and figure out how to do that. Um, (laughs) So those are, but obviously the main thing is the remote caching, remote execution services, which, because that is, um, that's huge. Uh, you know, that just speeds up your build. Like that's what takes you from th- that's where the promise gets fully delivered. Yeah. Where okay, I put all this effort into adopting pants. Um, and yeah, and it, it makes things faster because it has local caching and it can uh, apply concurrency uh, on the number of cores on your machine, and that's that's great. But to really get my CI times down by an order of magnitude, that's where remote caching, remote execution comes in, and that's kind of the big benefit of toolchain um, beyond it's open source pants. I have a theory that more compute time is wasted on repeated build execution that is totally unnecessary because somebody else has done the exact same thing than than is spent on cryptocurrencies. Like the amount of waste <laughs> wow. in CI and developer machines, mm. just doing the same computations over and over again identical. is identical. Like it's just is so silly. Yeah, I mean. Way. Every CI run overlaps with every, you know, with with its predecessor by like so much. So much. But the only way to tease that out and take advantage of it is a system that can break your build work down into many, many tiny, fine-grained work units, and that's exactly what Pants does. Uh, and that's where earlier systems cannot basically yeah. their model of your code, like you said, Huge. is at the class path awesome. level, and they can't really do it in a fine-grained way. But if we exactly. can take your build and break it down into many thousands of pieces. And each of those pieces can separately be considered for caching and for uh, concurrent execution. That's where, yeah, so, because you're absolutely right. Like most builds are doing the same work over and over and over again. And we all understand this intuitively. Based on on downloading the same things over and over and over again. It's just silly. And we all intuitively know this. Like when we look at builds, we sort of intuitively know that. Like I know that my change only affected like a handful of tests, but yet every single one of the thousands of tests had to run. So yeah. Yeah. Um, Good. I'm glad that you're solving that problem. (laughs) The waste is um, enormous, enormous and and just why it's unnecessary because that's not the problem we're trying to solve we're trying to get our product out and the, the build system is just in the way <laughs> that's right the build, yeah so pants it's not in your way <laughs> yeah the name you know with hindsight i would i don't know maybe we missed an opportunity to change the name when we launched v2 but it's is what it is at this point it's fun i don't know a little bit of mirth yeah it's fine yeah Got to keep it human, and it—I mean—it is kind of fits with the Python yeah. world. So, silliness. yeah, yeah, a little bit of silliness. Yeah. Well, well, I'm excited to try pants. I, I will give it a try and report back. Great. And um, yeah, I think uh, it sounds sounds like you all have the right heart behind it and doing some really good stuff. So, mm-hmm. thanks for all your your work and making the developer world more productive and better. Yeah. Um, it's honestly. I'm glad people enjoy it, but I love working on it so much that I would be working on it even if I was the only user. <laughs> That's, awesome. That's, That's great to hear. That's huge. Thanks, right. Benji. Thank Thanks. you.